Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God and how it was organized in the early church and the early times of the church and what the church is and and uh, what uh, how the congregations met. Did they meet in big buildings? Were they building cathedrals? No, that hadn't started yet. That didn't come for a thousand years. They were most likely meeting in homes. And again, we see the rise of home churches uh, today. And so that's going to be part of our topic. And uh, I've been madly trying to get together some notes and by reading what lots of people think home church is and how home church is organized and uh, what they might be missing and what they might be overlooking, what they might be misinterpreting in the text. And uh, that's a big job because there's a lot of that going on because of the fact that, you know, people say, well, I just need to read the Bible. Well, what you need is the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot of people claiming to have the Holy Spirit, but they're in agreement with other people, a disagreement with other people who also claim to have the Holy Spirit. So how do you know who really has the Holy Spirit? And how do you know if you really have the Holy Spirit? And uh, that you are really doing what Christ said, that you really are a believer. People say, well, all you have to do is believe. And uh, so the question is, how do you know you believe? Well, you say you believe, but Jesus was adamant, repeated this in many different ways. It's not those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who actually do it the will of my Father. I mean, even forgiveness. People say, well, we're forgiven because Jesus died on the cross. Well, Jesus said that unless you forgive, neither will my Father forgive you. So, when you say Jesus died on the cross for you, well, maybe... He, we know he came that you might be saved, but you actually qualify as a believer. How do we know you believe? What are you doing? James makes this really clear. Paul really makes it clear too, although his, it's very clear by the quotes that you can pull from Paul that he already assumes you know that your belief has to be manifested in your daily confession. What you do, what you say, how you say it, how you Act upon what you say. If you're a liar, lying not only to other people, but lying to yourself, you may think you're a believer, but you're not actually a believer. Even Peter, 1 Peter 1.22, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto feigned love of the brethren, See that ye love one another with pure heart, fervently. Uh, I think I said that right. Unto unfeigned love of the brother. <laughs> so that ye love one another with a pure heart, fervently. And so that's this fervent charity of loving one another. And loving one another, that's not a new thing. Uh, we'll see that. Moses said, love thy neighbor as thyself. So he was teaching exactly what Jesus Christ was teaching, except that people 
people misinterpreted Moses. And certainly the Pharisees misinterpreted Moses because Jesus said, if you knew Moses, you would know me. Because he spoke of me. He he was teaching what I was teaching. We see in what they call the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah and Jesus are all meeting. They, they're in agreement. They're, Jesus did not do away with the law of God. The nomos of God. That's the Greek word, nomos. And we're going to take a look at that word because uh, it comes into play when we're examining house church because uh, there's a word oikidomos, which is a combination of uh, the word for house and the word for law, and which is nomos. Except for the Greek word for nomos didn't mean exactly what law means today when we say the word law in most people's minds and and the romans saw this difficulty and so they actually had two words for law that are commonly translated law today and our word law sometimes can mean one of those words and some kind sometimes can mean another of those different latin words it was lex legis was one of those words, and the other one was jus juris, which is where we get words like jurisdiction and jurisprudence and jury, and that's that's a different word. They're both sometimes translated into law, but they really mean something different. The Greeks only had nomos. Uh, they actually had a few other words, but they weren't very commonly used, and we don't see them in the Bible. For the most part, we don't even see Sometimes the Greeks like to take two Greek words and put them together to make a third Greek word that doesn't mean actually either one of the first two, but somehow by bringing them together, they bring these two ideas together and create something new. And so you'll see that where they talk about, well, they'll take the word nomos and put it into another Greek word, and the combination of those two make uh a new word altogether. And of course, that's that's what Christ was doing, was giving us something new altogether, but constantly quoting the Old Testament, constantly looking at the Old Testament and coming up with, um, you know, uh, statements that were clarifying what they really meant in the Old Testament and what they were trying to establish in uh, the Old Testament. So, so anyway, we're, we're going to be looking at all those things. There's a lot of things going on in the news. Maybe we'll talk about that in the, uh, the show this afternoon. But, uh, let's get right into the home church topic so that we can, because uh, there's a lot there. I haven't finished, uh, my research. It's an ongoing thing, so things may change, but I'm putting together a, a page on home church. And uh, lots of footnotes, lots of examinations of the different scriptures. Because a lot of people trying to promote home church are taking scriptures out of context and and looking at translations and actually a variety of translations. Because they don't all, you know, like in, in one translation, uh, a Greek word will be translated house. And the next translation or another translation it'll be translated household 
and they, they'll actually take two completely, or actually three different words, but two completely different Greek words, and they'll translate both of them household. And they don't, or, or even house. And one of them doesn't mean house at all. It, it means something quite different. And if they do that with two or three words in the same verse, and then you read it in English, and you're applying your definitions today, in, in in English, you may get a different sense of the verse than the author intended. And if you have other people coming along and saying, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right, and confirming that, you can be led away from the original intent of the author's writing in the Bible, assuming that the authors writing in the Bible were being led by the Holy Spirit, every translator and every reader of the Bible are not always being led by the Holy Spirit. So, the reason we take a look, a deeper look into the text is to test your interpretation. Does it fit? Is there contradictions? And then you, personally, need to go into your own prayer closets and consult with the Holy Spirit and find out, wait a minute, have I possibly been misled by what other people are telling me that the apostles meant and that the scriptures mean? And and that misleading can not, you know, you may be absolutely right that the early church, the early congregations of the people were meeting in homes, but if you're misinterpreting uh, several verses, maybe dozens of verses, and the words in those verses, slightly looking in another direction, you may be missing aspects of that early home church movement that you need to attend to. And the, all the apostles were telling us this, that you needed to check what you believe to be true in your mind with what the original intent was. Ultimate checker is the Holy Spirit, but you need to converse amongst each other, challenge one another. As many as I love, I also rebuke. Uh, in other words, you know, and chasten and say, well, yeah, there was home church, but you're using this verse wrong. And so if you look at this verse in its actual context, you you do have home church, but you need to add this element to your home church gathering. And that's what I see often happening is that the home church gatherings are leaving out major portions of what the early church were doing, important portions, important functions of the early church. And, and they're leaving that out of their home church gathering and missing out on that uh, perfecting uh, yourselves with that doing of the word that uh, the apostles you know and, and peter talk about what what is he what is he saying in, in that peter where he's talking about this this fervent doing that you're supposed to be attending to in uh, and why uh, have you been neglecting that? So anyway, uh, we'll we'll get right into this other article and uh, examine how 
we might be missing the critical parts of home churching and home gathering. Most of the people at, uh, you know, that are gathering around my writings, which you find at His Holy Church and PreparingYou.com, HisHolyChurch.org, and, uh, you know, the people that we help gather together, not forsaking the gathering together, are gathering in small home churches and small gatherings. But we don't just do that. And getting people to see that bigger picture of the early church and what it meant to feed my sheep is really a challenging thing today. Uh, people have gone off course quite a bit. And, and much of that, again, is because of misinterpreting some simple words in the text. And then, you know, and your minister should be fully aware of these things. And so that's why we're we're creating this web page and other articles and making these audios and podcasts so that you can, you know, at Keys of the Kingdom, so that you can take a look for yourself. So anyway, we see that thousands of people are leaving the church, or what we call the church today, on a daily basis. And uh, what sometimes is posing as the church today is not really have much in common with what the early church was doing, what we call the church. Uh, or I mean, we have this word that we see in the text, and we'll take a deep, deeper look at that and uh, and see what that actually means. But that word church is translated from the Greek word ekklesia, which actually means called out, and did not mean a called out, uh, ecclesia doesn't mean an assembly. And people like to say that it does. And we'll take a look at the Greek words that do mean assembly. But that's, you know, and there's half a dozen different Greek words that can mean assembly that you could translate into assembly. And then, so, are we missing something if we take six different Greek words and translate them all into assembly? Why in the heck, why in the world did the authors use those different words? Why didn't they all use the same word if they all mean the same thing? And then you take the word assembly, you can you can say, well, we all got together, so that was an assembly. And we all mentioned Jesus, so it was an assembly of Jesus. And we all did church in in in, in our home. We do church, we assemble in our home, because you think the word church means assembly. The word church doesn't mean assembly. And so anyway, we're going to look at that. But many people have uh, a problem with the modern church, a version of an organized church, of this idea you say uh, they're against organized church, organized religion. Well, all this kind of depends on what you mean by the word organized. I mean, people have an objection to a lot of things that are organized. You know, organized sports, organized government. Um they have an objection uh, against that. When we used to play uh, uh, games in uh, the seminary, we only had 60 guys in the whole school. Uh, we had more guys where we actually attended class, which was down the hill from uh, where we were actually in our seminary. Our seminary, we didn't, we had evening classes and night classes and private tutoring and a lot of study hall, but we actually attended uh uh, college, St. Joseph's College, down the hill. 
And, uh, uh, but up there, when we had our wreck and we were going to play, uh, volleyball or, 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 or soccer, that was a big one. Uh, handball was another popular one. It was a mission seminary, so the soccer was important because everywhere you went on the missions, people played soccer. They didn't play football. We did play some football. We played all kinds of sports. The way we did this is, you know, as soon as we got into our rec clothes, we ran out to the fields. And, you know, if you wanted to play handball, there were only a couple of handball courts. If you wanted to play basketball, there was only one court there. And if you wanted to play, uh, you know, one of the other sports, it was limited. So everybody ran to the sport where they, <laughs> they wanted to play and immediately divided up whoever showed up into teams, you know, uh, you know, they would kind of show of hands who they wanted to be the captains, and they usually picked the best players. The two of those guys became captains, and they immediately took turns taking uh, different uh, students. And when I was a freshman, um, uh, I was this when I was a freshman. We were attending St. Joseph College, but uh, I was actually <laughs> 13 years old at the time, uh, turned 14 during this this first year. Uh, but I was one of the smallest guys there, the youngest guy there. And so I was often one of the last guys picked. But it took not more than 120 seconds, and we'd completely organized ourselves into a um, soccer team. And because we only had a limited amount of time to play, so we did it very quick. So that was organized. But it was completely organized from the ground up. And... uh it, and it was done real quickly, and the next time we played, you might have different teams and uh, organized in a different way. But uh, I, I got to do a lot of I, – I got really good at soccer. So when I went to regular uh, schools years later uh, to finish out my high school, uh, even though I had gone and taken all these other courses at a much higher level, I went when I went to uh, – left the seminary and went to a regular high school – I was pretty darn good at soccer by then because I'd been playing with big boys <laughs> for quite a while. But anyway, the the point was that was all a product of self-organizing. What I think a lot of people don't like about the word organized is it's top-down organizing. Well, if it's top-down organizing, it's not your internal Holy Spirit that you get to listen to and participate with and choose to participate. It's not very organic, and that's what we see in the word organized is the word organ as in organic and an organic organization is bottom up a, a top down organization is not organic it's not as organic and, unless of course the top of your organization is Jesus Christ and he's organizing you through the comforter which is that Holy Spirit so you see that's an important thing but what happens is that we get soured on the idea of church, but the idea of church that we have is imposed upon us by our misinterpretation uh, and other people's misinterpretation of many of the very simple words in the scriptures. And so, you know, here I come along and we're challenging your view of the scriptures. And we're going to point out what some words actually mean. You know, if you have several words that are translated into the same English word or, you know, there's numerous English words attached to one single Greek word, it can start 
And if there was an agenda in the hearts of the translators and an agenda in the hearts of your ministers that is not completely the Holy Spirit, you can be led astray. Whether that's their intent or not is irrelevant. Their error, their lack of knowledge, can accidentally lead you and themselves away from the truth that the original authors and the original Holy Spirit was trying to impart to you. So, so I am going to challenge many of the things that you think are true, but I'm not going to challenge them just to tear them down. I'm going to challenge them so that you can make room in your own hearts for a re-examination, which is advised by all the apostles, uh, of your faith. So that you can become that perfected person in in the doing of the word. Because if you're told to do this and it's not what was originally intended and you go do it, that's not a good thing. Now, I believe that as you as you seek the kingdom earnestly, honestly, and delve into the very depths of your own soul and heart and mind, that the Holy Spirit will help you lead. I'm just here to help you up from what might be an error. Whether it's an error or not, in your mind, I'm talking to, you know, I don't know how many people I'm talking to. It could be thousands and thousands of people that listen to this. So I'm not, I'm not, when I say that something is an error or there seems to be a conflict of, of meanings here, I'm not trying to criticize you as an individual. As many as I love, I also rebuke. And even though I may be saying that this is the wrong way to look at it, and I give you the reasons why. Someone actually complained about, oh, I don't need your footnotes. Well, you know, a lot of times in my footnotes, you know, if I mention a verse, you know, and I I hate this when people mention verses by the verse. And they say, oh, yeah, this means this, or they'll actually say, this is what God wanted you to do because of, and they'll list several verses, but they don't actually put down the verse in in the writing. So I have to stop and go look up, well, what exactly does it say in that verse? <laughs> A lot of people don't do that. I put in the footnotes the actual verse, and often in the footnotes, you, the verse itself is linked to the actual place where the verse shows up. So you can go quickly and read the context for yourself. And then when you go read the context, I show you standard concordances of how that, what word is actually there and what they say it means. And occasionally I'll put in comments as to show you that, well, if it means this here, then why does did they change the word over here <laughs> so that you can so you can look for yourself it's a, it's a study tool and, and having a study bible or a study uh program where you're helping you to examine these things uh is is a gift it's a benefit that we offer you don't have to look at the footnote but it's there for your convenience but we'll be right back well welcome back so Lots of people are meeting in their homes, uh, and they call it home church or house church. And they're doing it for all kinds of different re re reasons. 
sometimes they, you know, when they look at what is posing as the church today, you know, and I have to say posing because there's so many different varieties out there. Everything out there that says it's the church can't be the church. They're so different. They have all kinds of different ideas about what Christ said. Some of them are wrong. <laughs> and if they're not really doing what Christ said, and they're not really doing it the way Christ said it, then they may not really be the church. Because, I mean, the definition of the church, uh, at least in the law dictionary, is that it was established by Jesus Christ. It wasn't established by Martin Luther. It wasn't established by Pope Benedict or I can't remember the name of the Pope now. It, it was established by Jesus Christ. Now, you know, you can go back in history and try to find out what Jesus Christ established. What was he saying when I appoint, he takes his little flock and he appoints them to them a kingdom, gives them specific instructions. If, if whatever says it's the church is not doing what Jesus said, and maybe even doing contrary to what Jesus said. Personally, I don't think that's the church. It's a church, but it's not the church. <laughs> and if it, 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 and we can go into all that, but we don't want to get too distracted. But the point is, what's posing as the church to some people is too authoritarian. And to other people, maybe the ministers that were in that church, which, you know, a lot of these churches they have a minister who becomes kind of the identity you know the way he looks at it that's what the church is and they find him too manipulative they can even find him too greedy and you know maybe he's too corrupt you know maybe he's sleeping around maybe he's molesting children all kinds of things that could be going on that just sours you he treated you unfairly you know like my fourth grade teacher <laughs> which i mentioned often because um, she did something to me that was unfair and I held it against her for many many years um, and it, finally when I began to realize that I was carrying this grudge uh, that it was actually affecting the way I was even raising my own children not dramatically but at least I saw the connection and could forgive her uh, of her injustice it was a release to me. It allowed me to let go of that. But now I look back at that uh, whole event fondly uh, because of the fact that through that injustice, my unforgiveness for many years, it was buried deep down and I didn't hear it coming out until I was raising my own children. And then I found myself repeating her way of doing things. And it was really basically just one event with her that scarred me and bothered me evidently for 20, 30 years until I finally revisited it, could forgive her. And now that actually the memory is a fond memory now. And what was a painful memory has now become a blessing because of the fact, that, which is why Jesus makes it so, so important that we forgive. So what happens is that when somebody in the church is too authoritarian, too manipulative, too greedy, too abusive, in whatever way, shape, or form, suddenly we don't want to have anything to do with church. And, you know, I even, like I said, when I first began to 
write, I didn't even, and had to write about the church and write about the history of the church. I didn't even like to talk about and use the word church. It had developed such a bad taste in my mouth. And that wasn't just one event with my fourth grade teacher. That was uh, when I realized that I had been lied to and misled and and things had been twisted. And, and much of this was because they had been lied to and misled. You know, it wasn't always evil intent by the people who were deceiving me. They were just passing on their deception to the next generation because they had been deceived. So who was the father of deceivers? Well, you know, we refer to him as, as Satan or Beelzebub or whatever. But the reality is that lie can be passed down from generation to generation. And you have to forgive all that all the way back to the beginning. And that's why forgiveness is so important because then that releases you and allows for the Holy Spirit to come in and begin to operate instead of you being pulled by the strings of abuse that have followed you in the past. And we've talked, you know, you can look at the extreme cases of, you know, people like Jeffrey Dahmer and all these people who become these mass murderers and like the old guy, I guess he's strangled at least 70 people uh, over a long period of time and just strangled them to death. And he was, you know, what happened to him as a child that got him into this perpetual evil uh, mass murdering, uh, serial killer murdering, uh, th- that he was in, in, uh, ensnared into for, for over half a century. So, what, what, what's actually going on? Well, there's a lot of less dramatic things that snare our own hearts. Little traumas. Little violations that we are not quite ready to forgive. We may even forgot what it is and so that we don't forgive it. And it, it drags on us like the chains of Marley so that you, you can't be free. You, you have no room with that darkness in your heart, that holding that grudge in, in your heart. You have no room for real love and which you can't conjure up. Real love isn't what you like. Real love is a power and force of God dwelling in you, passing through you like a conduit of energy. And going out and and can even heal other people. When Jesus was touched by the lady, he felt the virtue. That's that love coming out of him. And it immediately healed her. And it went from him to her without him even evidently knowing. He could feel it going. But he didn't make a conscious decision to let it go to her. It went to her because of the fact that she had made a conscious decision to repent, to think differently. Instead of going to all the doctors that took all of her money over her life for, to be healed, she decided for some strange internal reason to go and touch the hem of Jesus' Jesus's garment. And when she did that, that act of faith, then suddenly the healing came into her. It's an actual power. That love is an actual power. Most of the love that people talk about, you know, I love chicken, I love, you know, my cat, you know, I, I love my girlfriend, I love, you know, but these are all things that you like because they make you feel good. And, you know, you may care for them, but it's, it's motivated out of a desire of what that individual or that thing can 
give you in the way of feelings of comfort. But our comforter is supposed to be this Holy Spirit. That's where our comfort comes from. And then now, when our comfort comes from that Holy Spirit, when we go out and relate to things like, you know, chicken or our cat or our girlfriend, that love is a love that is giving out. It is transmitting that energy of love that transmitted from Christ into the woman who was healed. That's a different kind of love than the love that I love my girlfriend because she makes me feel so good. But, you know, 20 years from now, she may not make you feel so good and you want a divorce. <laughs> so, <laughs> And unfortunately, a lot of times it doesn't even take 20 years. That's because you're getting a feeling or an affirmation of acceptance from something outside yourself. And the natural state of man who is blessed in the love of God is getting his love from an internal source. It's it's also from outside yourself, but you realize it internally. It's within you. And then now that love should be radiating from inside you out to others. And the fact that, you know, your your girlfriend who became your wife and raised your ten kids and or two kids or one kid or whatever it was, suddenly she doesn't ring your bell anymore. She doesn't she doesn't make it happen anymore. She doesn't make you feel good anymore. So you've drifted apart. And so now you're going to go your own way and each of you will be happy somewhere else. No, you won't. Because you're just going to be looking for, you know, another fish to fry. You know, another chicken to roast. Something else to make you feel good. And they might make you feel good for a while. But that's not the love I'm talking about when I'm talking about the love of Christ. The love of Christ comes to give of itself to others. Even to the point of laying down its life for others. So anyway, that was a little bit of a sidetrack. But you have to realize one of the things that a lot of people have left the church is because it's superfluous. It doesn't, it doesn't ring their bell anymore. It doesn't make them feel good. They do not feel satisfied in the churches that they're going to. And that in itself is not a bad thing that they don't make you feel satisfied because maybe they're not doing what you're really looking for, which is the real Christ, the real uh, Jesus and they don't seem to be giving it to you so you start looking somewhere else and one of the places that people look is home church and and that's not bad in itself that may be a good thing change may be good but the early church was not just home gatherings in their houses I mean if you just read the epistles you can see I mean Paul's and, and Barnabas and and others are are concerned with people. I mean, Peter's appointing people to seven guys to help attend to the daily ministration of Greeks. Well, those are Greeks way off. The Jewish Greeks way off. They're they're in Greece, and he's appointing seven men to help attend them. And we see Paul and Barnabas and them going out to these other places. And, and bringing funds and evidently supplies to these other places when there was time of need. And we're going to take a look at some of the words that are not translated. I could say not translated correctly, but literally 
the way that they are meant in the Greek. But again, if you have the Holy Spirit, you're going to start saying, well, hey, you know, that doesn't seem right. Something's missing there. And you might take a look and look up the word. Well, we've already done that. And we lay it out in our footnotes so that you can go and look and see, oh, that's what they meant. Oh, that's why they said that. That's why they're talking about healing nations. Oh, I get it. You know, because we're showing you. All we're doing is showing you some of the technical information. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I I hope to be led by the Holy Spirit. My words come to you by way of the Holy Spirit. But you need to find the Holy Spirit. Because unless you do, you can't be self-organizing. You can't become that organic church, that organic kingdom of God and His righteousness. So, some believe small churches were the deliberate apostolic pattern in the first century. And they were intended by Christ from the beginning. There seems to be a lot of evidence of that intent. But we need to seek the whole plan of God and his righteousness. What? Not just that we do gather in small companies, small little gatherings in our home churches, you know, where we gather in the church, but we have to look at the whole plan of Christ. Because if we don't, what we're doing is a lie. It's not really uh, what Christ was establishing. Christ didn't come preaching the church of heaven on earth. He came preaching the kingdom of heaven at hand. And we're supposed to be seeking that kingdom of heaven at hand and the righteousness of God. And so by the time we're done with this study, we should have a pretty good idea of what that looks like. But we're going to be challenging some of the ideas that may already be in your head. But that's okay. You forgive those people that got those ideas and then you forgive yourself for having some of those incorrect ideas when you discover them, but move forward so that you can see, find all the pieces of the puzzle and and have the Holy Spirit guide you in putting those together. So this phrase, home church, is used to describe having church-type gatherings, I have to say church-type gatherings, at someone's house and is a part of this modern house church movement, which some acclaim as... Um, a rediscovery of the New Testament or the first century church. And it is part of a rediscovery. But again, we have to look at that whole picture of the house church and and what that house church was doing. Because all those little congregations of people that gathered in house churches, they were linked, literally physically linked, to all the other house churches. They had to be. In order to be saved, because the world was going through a serious upheaval that was, I mean, huge changes. You have to remember that Jesus was born at the time the first Caesar became Caesar of Rome. And Rome had spread over much of the, what we call the Roman Empire, much of Europe, and even North Africa, and their influence was everywhere, and all by People like Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar and Caesar is a it, it was not a name but a an office became an office 
and uh, of the Roman government. He was the imperator, the commander-in-chief of the, the military. And although Roman influence spread mostly because of Roman wealth and Roman industry, if you were a centurion, it was more... Uh, it was uh, it was likely if you were a centurion, it was likely that you would live out your whole career with never pulling your sword in battle. And most people find that uh, an amazing, but you know, historians who have looked into it deeply that that's actually the case. If you look at all of the centurions and what the centurions were mostly doing, they weren't fighting wars all the time. They carried swords, but heck, all the apostles carried swords, according to what we see in the text. Now, lots of people carried swords in those days and 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 personal weapons because everybody was responsible for law and order and you you had to be protected but they did have you know the where the centurions actually acted not only as a military but sometimes as local police and and keeping law and order uh and they had a code by which they lived and and they had ranks by which they were organized but uh, most of what the Roman centurion was doing was building, building harbors, building roads, building uh, aqueducts, uh, mining. Uh, they would go up and they would be a part of that whole system of expanding commerce of Rome. Because this is what made them wealthy, is building this commerce of Rome and trade and uh you know, then, of course, then they got a little bit more military even in their fleets where they would have some ships that were militarily designed to go out and protect the other ships, which were the bigger ships, that were hauling huge amounts of product from harbor to harbor as part of trade routes. This is how Rome grew. It did not grow simply by going around and conquering everybody who had something they wanted to take. That's not the way they operated. And so we get that kind of misunderstanding of history by looking at too many (laughs) B-movies over the years. But anyway, so what's the church doing and how is it operating? Well, it organized itself into companies, which were they call symposia. That's the word we see translated into companies, which were small groups of 10 families. And they met, you know, the heads of those families met in homes. You know, like the 120 in the upper room which is something we'll get to later, but that was probably 120 men in the upper room and their families. That's a big room. That's not, you know, I don't have an upper room we could get 120 people. (laughs) That's not your regular house church. That's a lot of folks. And, uh, you know, the 5,000 that uh, out there in the wilderness was 5,000 men and their families. So it was probably like 20, 25, 30,000 people altogether. I mean, those families were big in those days. And, uh, so, I mean, it could have been, it could have been 40,000, 50,000 people that were there. Uh, I mean, we just don't know exactly, but we know it was 5,000 men and their families. When you see them mentioning 2,000 getting baptized one day and 3,000 next day. That was probably the men and their families. Uh, so that that's how they were 
because the idea of the, the prophecy of Christ was to, to return every man to his family. And then those families would gather in what was called, in the Old Testament, was called free assemblies. And those free assemblies were usually ten heads of families and those families. And then they gather together in ten groups of these ten. And so that's your tens, hundreds, and, and then up to a unit of 5,000 would be tens, hundreds, and fifties, or tens, fifties, and hundreds. And of course we see in Mark 6, uh, verse 39, where Jesus is commanding his apostles to organize the people in that fashion. Well, I'm pretty sure, and it, this probably took a while, it took longer than it took us to organize, uh, a soccer team. <laughs> Because, I mean, you're dealing with thousands and thousands of people. But they may have had some semblance of this already. Because that was traditionally, that's the way Teutons gathered. That's the way the Jutes gathered. That's the way uh, Israel gathered. So they already had some semblance. Even at that time, the synagogues, which does mean assembly, the synagogues were organized in the pattern of ten families. If there was a local synagogue, it was probably ten families that were in that synagogue. And then there would be another synagogue of ten families and another synagogue of ten families. But at that time, if you were following the Pharisee point of view, which was, you have to remember the temple was a government building built by Herod the Great, who murdered his own sons to maintain power. <laughs> at least one of them. And uh, uh, wanted to murder Jesus Christ. And so this guy built this temple. He also built the Temple of Roma. See, if you start seeing, like, what's really going on? So this temple is not a good thing. Uh, Jesus clearly treats it like it's not a good thing. It's there, whatever, but uh, it's not a good thing. And he talks about tearing down the temple. Of course, he was talking about, metaphorically, he's talking about himself uh, dying for three days. He wasn't talking about tearing down that temple. But he also talks about not a stone upon a stone. So people look at Herod's temple and they say, oh, it was tore down. There wasn't a stone upon a stone. <laughs> and so that was a fulfillment of that prophecy. But it also, the Bible talks about living stones. That's people. So what he's actually saying is there's not going to be people upon people standing up higher because they're standing on the backs of others. In other words, he says the same thing. You are not to exercise authority one over the other. But he is to be highest amongst you to be servants. So back to that organizing 5,000 men and their families into tens, hundreds, and fifty hundreds, a total of 5,000 people. The apostles were said they were to make the people sit down. So they were probably not going around saying, okay, you, 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 you sit over here. You, 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 you sit over here. They weren't doing that. They were just saying, okay, you guys, we got to, because he's saying it to 20,000 people. So they're going out there saying, everybody sit down in the tens, hundreds and thousands, and then we're going to do something here. So, I mean, it might have taken days to get <laughs> tens, hundreds and thousands organized, unless they had already started to do that, and they were already organized in that fashion, which is likely, 
And so, but now he was saying, I want you to actually sit down in those patterns that you've already been working on. I mean, he's already had the 70 he sent out, which was the Sanhedrin of Jesus, because that's what the Sanhedrin were, was 70. He was organizing a different government. It wasn't in Jerusalem. They had a Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, but it was Jesus. He would enter Jerusalem along with his 70 and his apostles. They would enter Jerusalem, but they would not be well received by the establishment. They would be well received by the people, but they would not be well received by the established government. Because remember, at the very beginning, Jesus says, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you guys. And I'm going to appoint it to another. And so that triumphant entry into Jerusalem, that's what he was doing. They didn't like that, the, the established government. But that's why we use the word ecclesia, which we'll get to later. But we'll be right back, so don't go away. We're taking a look at this house church thing. And uh, one of the first questions that would come to my mind is, do we have a complete picture? Are we missing certain key elements of what this local Christian community looked like? And we talked about the the uh, synagogues being uh, groups of ten men. And they connected with other synagogues and then eventually they connected up to the temple and they had created this whole system based on what they believed the Old Testament was talking about. But the problem was that under Herod, you actually signed up and Herod created this central treasury in the uh, temple and it was more like you paid in and then it came back down to you and you were expected because they turned the words of the Old Testament into a Greek nomos of imposed laws. Now you had uh, Gabbai, Molokai, preachers of this kingdom of Herod going out and pacing off your wheat field, pacing, you know, counting the branches of your commons plant in your windowsill because they knew that a portion of those branches were coming to them and then they could sell them as uh you know, spices and, and make lots of money. So you had, if you were a member of their synagogues, their, their ten groups of men and their families, you were, you were required by their law to pay in. And they actually enforced this. And that's not what the Levites were doing. It was called free will offerings. In the Old Testament, yeah, it was based on an idea of tithing, but you only had to tithe to them, and this is what it says, according to their service. If they weren't providing a good service, they weren't doing a good job, you didn't have to tithe to them. Herod had a different viewpoint. He told you what was right and wrong, what was good service, and you were required to pay in. This was different. And everybody was doing this. The Romans had moved to this this way of thinking. It was a kind of a form of socialism. And they had all moved to this idea that from each according to his means, and we will tell you what that is, and to each according to their needs, and we will tell you what that is. <laughs> so they were not always rightly dividing the bread from house to house. And we will see how this plays into a lot of these words that we uh, we translate oddly, I'll say oddly, not differently or wrongly or whatever, but we'll, when we look at these words, we will see, whoa, is that what they meant there? <laughs> but anyway, so 
until John the Baptist, everybody was trying to do this system of welfare by force. You know, forcing the contributions of the people and then redistributing the wealth according to the designs of the ministers who were often appointed from the top down. That wasn't the way it was originally in Rome, but it was that way at this time. It had become that way more and more since Augustus Caesar. I mean, it was a process. And I mean, we talk about Polybius who was talking about this happening even 150 years before Christ was born. But it was happening in Judea. It certainly was happening during the time of Herod. It certainly was happening in Rome in the time of Augustus Caesar. And it was certainly happening in the following Caesars. And so there daily bread, their free bread and circuses were handed out by a government who exercised authority one over the other. John the Baptist said, no, you have to self-organize yourselves and those who have two coats need to figure out a way of sharing those with who have no coat and do the same in meats. And that word meats there is has to do with food. Any kind of food. If you're hungry, you had to do it by sharing, not by forced offerings. Everybody else was using force. Now, in in this day and age, most of the people who go to churches, even home churches, they provide their daily ministration of the widows and orphans and the needy of their society through men who exercise force. And one of the things I point out here in this article is asking if we have a complete understanding or are we missing certain elements of this local Christian community and the society of Christians which reached all across the Roman Empire. And that society of Christians, which sometimes we generically refer to as the church, survived the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. They also survived that degeneration of the Roman people by the imperial cult of Rome. And if you want to know what I mean by degeneration, look up Polybius. Because he talks about the people degenerating until they were going to be subject to the first despot that comes along, the first tyrant that comes along. And we actually see that word despot mixed with another, the word oike, uh, or okios, uh, which is the Greek word for house. And we see that, and we'll take a look at that as we go through this study. But, so, are we missing something? Are we really attending to the weightier matters? That's one of the things that uh, Jesus, he condemned the Pharisees because they were hypocrites. That's, that's a generic idea that they were, they were saying something that was incorrect. And, but he's more specific with their Corbin. And with the fact that they were not attending to the weightier matters, which he lists off as law, judgment, mercy, and faith. And so, we're going to take a look at, is your home church measuring up to the home church of the early church? We don't deny that the early church or the early Christians gathered in home churches or home assemblies. Let's put it that way. But the church actually is something else. That that concept, there's the church specific, that's the people that Jesus appointed. But then there's the church in general, which is all the people who self-organize themselves in a free society to take care of one another because they love one another as God loves them. See, if you're not loving one another, don't tell me you're loving God. 
because that don't that does not compute in my book. <laughs> I mean, you can tell me it, uh, but I may you may find me rebuking you because that's not enough. You have to forgive one another in order to be forgiven. And if you really believe in Jesus, that's not a problem. But if you just want to say you believe in Jesus, then you may have a problem with forgiving other people. Well, I forgive them, but I don't forget that guy. <laughs> well, no, you have to forgive even your enemy. Jesus is really specific in this. Not that Moses didn't say the same thing. He said, bring drink to your enemy. Well, how can you do that if you haven't forgiven him in some way? You have to remember, forgiving is not absolution. They still may owe recompense. But it's you're not going to be the judge in condemning them. You know, that's one of the things about this whole idea of of uh, prisons and all this stuff. I heard somebody talking that this was uh, the idea of punishing people for what they did wrong. Well, that wasn't the reason for prisons originally. The reason for prison was to stop the person from injuring other people. It was restraining them. It wasn't for punishing them. The punishment for doing evil... He's doing evil. That's built into the system. But sometimes we have to lock you up because you're a threat. And we could save billions of dollars if we would understand that because there's a lot of people locked up that don't need to be locked up where we can uh, protect people. The punishment for doing evil is doing evil. You don't get away with those things. The reason you, you incarcerate people, the reason you should incarcerate people is to protect them, protect other people from the, the fact that they're a threat and a danger. And that's a really important part of changing your thinking, but that is, that's going to come later. First, let's, let's get the idea of what it means to love one another down. And, uh, but, uh, not to get off the topic too much, uh, what what we're well let's ask why were they meeting at all in their homes what what were they doing what were they accomplishing uh and why was that so important because clearly most of the apostles are talking about you know in the in the acts of the apostles and even in James and and others they're not talking about what they were talking about at their home meetings they were talking about how to take care of one another. We see this in in the, the recorded uh, apologies of Justin about what they did. They gathered once a week, and those that had shared with those that did not have enough. And this is what he's writing the emperor of Rome because he's telling the emperor of Rome, this is how we do it. Because there was a conflict between what the Romans were doing and what the Christians were doing. They were taking care of the needy of their society, but they were doing it in a way that Herod had been doing it because Herod had got the idea from the Romans and the Romans had got the ideas from probably some of the Greek city-states. But uh, the Christians were going back to pre-Polybius, pre-Caesar. They were back to taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. Unfortunately, today... It has become accepted, and it's a lie, that Jesus is okay with you applying to men who exercise authority to obtain benefits, obtain free bread, or whatever, 
and those men exercised authority one over the other. Jesus didn't want, want you to do that. John the Baptist did not want you to do that. Paul did not want you to do that. James, Peter, they all talk about not doing it because that's a covetous practice. Now that that is going to shake up a lot of people. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're saying I can't be applying for government benefits? No, I'm saying seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness is seeking a relationship first in your home churches and then connecting those home churches so that you're all sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and fifties, and thousands so that you can take care of those things through charity alone. That's pure religion. So that's where we're trying to get to. Now, that's a bold statement. So we're going to have to take a look. Is that actually what the Bible is saying? And I think if we go through some of these words that we will see that. But before we do that, the point is this disappointing church, uh, this church of disappointment, this church is why people are leaving by the thousands every day. Actually, millions of people have become disappointed and dissatisfied with what some people call the institutional church. And so they're against the institutional church. Well, Christ instituted something. The institutional church today may not be what Christ instituted. So that, we're gonna, if you're gonna really look at things anew, you're gonna have to look at some of the details of these things. But in principle, the church is supposed to be facilitating love, facilitating charity, facilitating your faith. Not in the church, but in the way of Christ. And you're supposed to be deciding, are my ministers helping me practice pure religion? Are, are the ministers I'm picking, me, I'm picking who's my minister. Nobody has the authority to say, this is your minister, unless you've already made agreements with them that they can do this, uh, that they can't appoint your minister from the top down. You have to look out amongst yourselves, find men you trust, and and you put them over the business of being your minister. But what is the minister supposed to be doing? Is he supposed to be just making you feel good? So that, that disappointment or dissatisfaction or discomfort you have in the institutional church, is it because they're not making you feel good? Or they're not helping you be good? And, and so that's an important question you're going to have to ask. And that's far-reaching in finding the answer of that. So, I mean, there's 40,000 different denominations of churches out there. And many of them are operating drastically different from each other and certainly drastically different than the first century church. And so what, if you really want to repent and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, if you really want to get back to that first century church, you have to look at, take a good hard look at what the, the modern church has become and, and start going the other way. Many people are finding the home churches are more responsive, more intimate, certainly, more fulfilling, maybe even spiritually, emotionally, certainly, they're more fulfilling in many ways, often. Although, a lot of people go around and shop for, I don't like this home church because it doesn't really make me feel as good as I want. This home church over here makes me feel better. You have to be careful. We're not supposed to be seeking. Jesus didn't come to make you feel good. 
he, he, he came so that you might be saved. And to be saved, you have to repent, think differently. It's not about you. Yeah, it is to some degree. You have to love yourself, take care of yourself, uh, you know, take care of your health, take care of the body God gave you, certainly take care of your family. But you have to love your neighbor as much as yourself. This is a part of that thinking. And you can't do that if you don't gather together. You know, you can't sit in your room with all the doors closed and all the shades shut and love your neighbor as yourself. Love is an action word. It has to transmit, translate into actual actions. Because that's what makes it fervent love. Fervent charity. Fervent religion. Is that when you're actually turning that love into action. And certainly, Christ did that. And if we love Christ, won't we be like Christ? Because he is one who came to serve. So that's why you gather, is so that you can serve one another. And when we look at some of these words, you're going to find out how far they really intended that. While there, like I say, there's little doubt that Christians commonly met in houses, what Christ intended and what the early church was doing reached far beyond local fellowship. These local fellowship meetings and homes with people who claim to be believers. It, what they were actually doing was a lot more than what most home churches that I come across have been thinking. I think it's great to have a home church, but let's take it to the next level. There is also no doubt that Christ wanted us to set ourselves down in these small, intimate groups, because we see that in in Mark six thirty nine, we actually see it in a couple of places, but it's very clear in that in that verse in that section of uh, Mark. Uh, since he actually commanded that that the, his apostles make the people gather in these small groups of ten families, because that's about as much as you can get in a home. And and what the amazing thing is, and I pointed this out before with Passover, that's what Passover was, is that you gathered in a home. Passover took place in a home didn't take place in a big cathedral. You went to a single home. And in that home, they were going to roast a lamb. And they were going to put, it, it may not be your home. It may be somebody else's home because you're supposed to eat that whole lamb tonight. So everybody's in there and they're all dressed and they all got their staves and they're roasting this lamb and they have other foods and they all eat it that night and they stay in that house all night. You know, when they're tired, they stay in that house. They stay in that house all night. The kids are sleeping on the floor. They're sleep, sleeping on the windowsill. But they're in that house all night. This is, this is a fan, this is house church. That's, that's what that is. And that was very important that those groups of ten become intimately connected with one another. Share that meal together. Uh, talk with one another about politics. <laughs> And government, you know, if everybody says, you know, when you have a big family gathering, don't mention politics. <laughs> don't mention religion. Well, at Passover, you get to talk politics and religion. <laughs> because that's what you're doing. You're organizing the grassroots government in this small home church assembly. But after the Passover... The whole nation's gonna have to get out of town. They're all gonna pack up and leave. 
and march out across the desert to some of the most unhospitable country in the world with all kinds of Amaleks and Malachites and Egyptians chasing you and everything. So all those little home church groups that were organized at Passover are going to play an important role, but they're all going to be connected. I mean, they're going to get like attacked and, and, uh, you know, by armies of people. And so they have to be able to, you know, young men to the front lines kind of thing, <laughs> to, and, and, you know, get the kids and the women in the back and, you know, protect the livestock and, you know, circle the wagon, so to speak. And so they, this was part of that organizing system. And that's why they had two different festivals throughout the year, at least two main festivals where everybody tried to get together again. So this is all a part of why Jesus also commanded, because they were going to have to do this. Because on Pentecost, in the New Testament, they were going, you know, we had Passover, the crucifixion, 50 days later, we have Pentecost, and which is what, where you get the word Pentecost, and everybody who gets the baptism of Jesus Christ was literally kicked out, 100% kicked out of the social welfare system operated through the synagogues and the temple of the Pharisees. What is amazing, and everybody seems to pass it over, is that the apostles are now working daily in the temple. They have the reins of government now. And there are people like Ananias and everything that want to join them because they're running the show. I mean, they they literally have access to the treasury now. But I think they really, I don't think they went in there and tried to take over the Pharisees' treasury. They just let them have that and they started anew. And there's a lot of reasons for this, but we won't go to them all now. But they were, they had to take care of the needy of their society through faith, hope, and charity. They had to be well organized to do this. And it was, and through the years that followed, we see that's what Paul is helping them do is organize themselves in this network that reached all across the Roman Empire. It wasn't just some isolated little home church where everybody went to, you know, have pizza. And feel good and read the Bible and think that they're all saved. They were actually had a job to tend to the whole, not a scattered flock, but the whole flock of Jesus Christ. And in order to do this, there had to be some men that were just dedicated their whole lives to this process. And uh, in truth, everybody had to dedicate their lives to this process because it was important to the, the those ten families on the ground to be a part of that process as it is for, uh, you know, Peter to be a part of that process. But Peter didn't say, you know, I'm going to appoint seven guys to rule over you. He says, you look out amongst yourselves. You pick them. You know, like us picking the volleyball teams or the soccer teams out there in the seminary. We had to organize ourselves. So we pick, we want this captain. We want this captain. They haven't picked the team yet. Now that tap captain starts dividing up the team. And we it was an interesting thing is that if we divided up the team and we started playing and one team just kept winning every soccer, you know, they were getting the goal at everyone. They would quickly, in a matter of seconds, they say, you know, so-and-so, why don't you get on that team? And he would switch teams. You know, we didn't always play with five guys. <laughs> our Our numbers would vary. You know, but we tried to, what we try, we're trying to do 
was balance the team to make it a better game. And so that you could actually do that if you were sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. The only reason you would go over to another congregation that was closer or maybe they needed help getting organized, so you'd go over and join that congregation for a while. And, you know, you you could certainly visit any congregation when they had tabernacles, you know, in the Old Testament. And there's evidence that that same, you know, that's kind of the fall festival that that was going on for a thousand years in the first century church. They didn't call it tabernacles, but they did gather uh, that in the gathering in the small gatherings where they got the heads of different of these tithings, they call them tithings, these uh, or detchens in some countries, these ten family groups, they would send their minister to gather once a month with other ministers to keep that flow of information going back and forth and to keep everybody abreast of what's going on in congregations that are more abreast. They called that gathering the filling of the butts for at least a couple hundred years. And what they were actually did at that gathering is they had target practice, which was really easy because it was always taking place on a full moon. And so they could they could be shooting their arrows at night because of the fact that they had a full moon. So this this idea of the tens, hundreds, and thousands was just so common throughout history. It's one of the oldest, most forms of self-government there ever was. Moses used it. Jethro used it. And the early church used it. And so if you're gathering in a home church, you, you will want to gather with other home churches as well. Not to, so you can build cathedrals, but so, uh, that you can take care of one another as we see the first century church doing during the many dearths and difficulties that were taking place right away. In the years that followed, the whole Roman government was collapsing. The, the imperial cult of Rome was filled with corruption and unable to satisfy the needs of the people. There were riots in the streets and everything. But most people don't even know what the imperial cult of Rome is. That was that system that we see Herod creating with his Molokai and Gabi and his, you know, pacing off your fields and forcing the contributions of the people. And, and it was also uh, what the Romans were doing with their free bread and circuses. But the Christians were doing something different. So finding out what that is and going that way is important. Now we're going to take a look at Scripture when we get back to Keys of the Kingdom and uh, see how it's been stretched. Well, welcome back. So what happens, well, actually, this departure from an organized church can uh, can bring condemnation and accusations from uh the existing mainstream or orthodox churches. Other Christians also will criticize you. Uh, and it may create certain personal feelings of guilt and discomfort because you were so used to going to church. And you're thinking like somehow or other you're abandoning God or Christ because you're going there. But sometimes the discomfort of going to church becomes so great that you just want to get out of there. And so you end up trying to go to a home church and those home churches offer you a certain amount of comfort and fellowship and and that's great in itself. But if we stop there, then we're not really seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness because, like I said, Christ didn't come to make you feel good. That that, that uh, you, How you feel has very little to do with righteousness. 
uh, in our society today, everybody is talking about feelings all the time. I mean, it's, it's, and it's allowing people to do, I mean, what I would consider just insane, crazy, uh, absurd things. I mean, uh, what was it, uh, a year or so ago, a few years ago, uh, a guy won woman of the year, uh, you know, the, was it Bruce Jenner, um, wins the women of the year award and a lot of women took great offense at that and returned they who had won it before they returned their trophies because they thought this was just a sham well actually i guess now miss universe uh may become uh miss spain and miss spain is actually mr spain <laughs> who uh had himself changed back when he was 16 years old supposedly to a woman but the reality is you can't just the operations aren't that good. You're not a woman. <laughs> it's, you just look like that maybe a little bit more. But it's insane. It's crazy. Uh, I mean, they have people, you know, 250-pound guys wrestling and uh, competing against girls because they feel like they're a girl. They're six foot three, 250 pounds, and they're out there uh, competing in sports with girls. And they said, well, he gets to do that because he thinks he's a girl. He feels like a girl. Well, you know, that's not, there's something seriously ill in society. I mean, girls are getting hurt. I mean, in the wrestling, they had a guy who was doing this, and he, you know, he was sending girls to the hospital with concussions. And he won the championship. Wow. You know, I mean, I would be embarrassed. <laughs> you know, like, I beat up on a girl and won the girls' championship. I mean, that, a few years ago, you know, if I was the wrestling coach, I'd get the biggest, best guy wrestler on the the guy wrestling team and say, you know what? We're going to put you on the girl wrestling team. <laughs> and when you go up against that guy who says he's a girl, you show him what that looks like. And uh, But anyway, it's just insane how, you know, most people can look at that. Well, I don't know about most people, but a lot of people can look at that and say, this has just gotten out of hand. This is crazy. This is insane. Uh, but it, it's gotten that bad. And, and people are getting hurt and injured. And, and their trophies are a mockery of, of the, uh, you know, People don't even want to be a part of it. This is this is why people like Trump won the presidency because people are just so fed up with this insanity that's coming from somewhere. But really, this insanity is coming from the society that you're creating. And the children that you're creating are being brainwashed to think that that's okay. There's going to be a backlash. And there's going to be people, you know, saying, no, no, this is wrong. This is just... This has gone too far. But unfortunately, there's a momentum in society. And you can all of a sudden decide it's gone too far, but you cannot turn back the clock. You're going to end up out in the wilderness for 40 years waiting for this brainwashed generation to die out and start over again. And uh, But anyway, you know, the other day I, I found the rabbit hole. And now I'm going to find out how deep the rabbit hole goes. Well, right now we're looking at how deep the rabbit hole goes in uh, this study of home church. And we're going to look at the stretching of Scripture because that's what happens is that people trying to justify and overcome those feelings of discomfort that they have when they go to home church. And that there's a whole home church movement trying to get more and more people to get out of the institutional church, get out of the Orthodox church, go to home church because that's where it's happening. And 
I, I, I agree that somewhere that, that can be where it's happening. But if you're just going to a home church because it's going to make you feel more comfortable, wrong motivation. You want to go to home church because you can become, seek a way that is more righteous. Because that's what you're seeking is the kingdom of God, not the home church of God, but the kingdom of God. And the way you do that is you gather in home churches, but you don't forget or lose sight of the kingdom and kingdom principles, which means you not only have to care about the people in your home church gathering, but your neighbor down the street and your neighboring congregation, uh, you know, 10 blocks over or two cities over or wherever they are. Because that outreach of care, and, and we just talked about this in our troll series, activates what we call, or, or stimulates what you call active empathy. And without that active empathy, spirits can enter into you, the spirit of the troll. And you just have to go listen to that series and read that page to find out what I'm talking about. Can enter into you and bring destruction. And that's actually what I see going on. I can't explain all that right now. You just do some more study. There's a spirit that's moving in society that's taking over the minds of your children. You see it in these demonstrations where people are being absolutely crazy and insane and and out of control and don't care about facts. And But that's actually a spirit that's taking over and they they want to feel justified in that. And they gather in groups. Antifa gathers in groups. And they all justify each other. So, gathering in groups can give you a feeling of justification. A feeling of fellowship. And the mafia has great feelings of fellowship. <laughs> but their goal is not Christ's goal. So, you want Christ's goal in your home church. So, one of the ways to find out what Christ's goal is, is to take a look at the scriptures. And take a look at where people are stretching the meaning of words in order to come up with some way of comforting you so that you feel okay in your home church or in this home church movement. Well, I think you should feel okay in the home church movement, but I don't think you should stretch Scripture or falsely represent Scripture or take Scripture out of context in order to justify that. Two reasons. One is you don't need to. There's Actually, I could come up with five reasons, but at least two reasons. Is you don't need to. It's very evident that Jesus wants you to gather in groups of ten. Small groups of intimate groups of families. And he wants you to do that. And he commands his uh, the disciples to get you to sit down in those groups. And, but he also wants you to organize those groups in ranks of 150 to come up with 5,000. If you want to come up with 10,000, it's 100 <laughs> groups of ten. And ten groups of those groups. So that's a tens, hundreds, and thousands. So anyway. But the point is, is that uh, you don't need to stretch these scriptures. And that, and then that brings us to the second reason. If you stretch the meaning of those scriptures out of what they were really intended to mean, you may miss what they were intending to mean. And not apply that in your home church. And that's what's happening. And we're not going to get to all that <laughs> in this session. But we'll take a look at some of these words. 
you know, uh, I see one of the first things that they bring up is First Timothy 3.15. And I just went to a number of home church advocates and, and was reading their articles. I picked one kind of that was kind of generic. And I respect the minister who's a part of that, uh, you know, movement. Uh, because I think he has some really good points that he makes. And, and I think he's really searching his soul. But I think, and, and he's still looking. And so I think maybe he would find some of our information of value to him. And he could implement that in what he's already doing. Because this is a journey for us all. And it was certainly a journey for Peter, even after Peter was, you know, coming out on Pentecost. And he was preaching. And, you know, Peter had a problem with the women. In the church. And, uh, but when he came out uh, preaching on Pentecost, he's talking about men and my sisters. He's talking to the women too. And, you know, I just recently conversed with a number of people, uh, about Paul and his whole message there. And, and I've been upgrading our notes and the, we have the whole Bible on preparing you and been upgrading our notes on some of these things so that people can, we have a, a panel over on the side that we put in some of the notes so you can kind of understand what was actually being said there. And, and it has its footnotes too, so you can check us out. And if you find errors, let us know. Join the network, let us know. And we'll take a look at that because we, we need to learn from you. This is why you gather together so that you can rebuke one another. Because as many as I love, I also rebuke. So you, if you think I'm doing wrong or saying wrong, you get a hold of us and you can tell us. But uh, you better have done your homework uh, because it's you may find out that we're not wrong. <laughs> but anyway, but in First Timothy three fifteen it says, "But I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar." And ground of the truth. Well, that, that's a mouthful. For one thing, he's talking about the house of God, which is the church. He's not saying the church is your house. He's saying the house of God is the church. And the word church there is the ecclesia. So he's talking about how you should behave in that. But of course, that church is not a building. That church is something else. It's, it's, it's an institution of Christ. It's not an institution of men, it's an institution of Christ. But if you want to edify that institution, you need to know how to behave in that. And so that's what First Timothy 3.15 is talking about. And we could go through that, and we will go through Timothy again, and uh, look at that in context. And I have there footnotes where you can go and click on Timothy and read it in context for yourself. But the, the Greek uh, noun that we see there, okos, oikos, does mean house. But the phrase house of God appears numerous times in the Gospels. And it's specifically a reference to the tabernacle. In the Gospels, they're talking about the tabernacle where David ate the showbread. So, that's not your house. (laughs) So, that doesn't have anything to do with house church. But yet, that's one of the first things. Now, one of the things is is that... uh, uh, in the translation that individual was using, it says God's household there rather than house of God. Well, there's other words that are translated household, and we'll take a look at those. But 
So right away, his translation is not necessarily accurate. I'm not, I'm, when I mention these things and I use the King James for consistency, uh, people say, oh, are you one of these King, King James only? No, I'm, I'm Holy Spirit only. <laughs> but King James exists, has a lot of references. If you're going to take that text, you know, I don't, I don't like, you know, if you're going to be writing, you have to always say, well, in the King James, it says this. In the NIV, it says this. And so you have to put the NIV at the end of uh, each of your quotes so you, they know where you got it. I'm just going to use the King James. And then I'll talk to you about what I think that original, you know, based on the Holy Spirit leading me and has shown me, I give to you freely what I think that they were actually talking about there. But it's very clear that that First Timothy 3.15 and... And those other places in the gospel where you see um, that, like Matthew 12, 4, Mark 2, 26, Luke 6, 4, all of them have this phrase, house of God. And uh, that's, uh, that is not, that is not your house. That's something else. So anyway, so we can also say, uh, but this word we see translated house which is okos, did not just mean a building either or a house on a street where you live or more than the, the word church, which doesn't, you know, which is from ecclesia, meant an assembly. They, that's not what it means. These are specific words and they have, you know, that's not where you, people talk about doing church. How do you do called out? <laughs> also, they're misusing these terms, and it's because for centuries, you know, church has become this building, church has become this uh, organization of men with top-down rulership, and then there was the Protestant Reformation, and then the church was according to Luther, and the church was according to this guy and that guy, and but the fact is the church is the called out of Christ. It's the original apostles, and those who are doing what the original apostles were doing. And if they're not doing that, they're not the church. They may call themselves the church, but they're not the church. So it's kind of like truth or consequences. Will the real church please stand up? And if you're following the one that's not the real church, there's going to be consequences. And so you want to take a look at this deeper and say, yeah, it's great that we're in a home church, but is our home church doing what Christ intended the home church to do so what really what your home church is we call home church it's the home congregation it's the tens it's the home companies it's the congregations of the people it becomes the church when they gather together with all the other home churches and start doing what we clearly see in that first century uh both these words can be used in, in different ways meaning the ecclesia and and oikos um, this word oikos uh, could mean all the persons forming one family that it's not just a house it's a household in that sense although that's not the word you would translate into household but it's that house that family and they have one common father uh, hopefully <laughs> and they all live together that one living father and they all live together under that father. And he, that includes his sons and, and married daughters. Unmarried daughters join another family. They're a part of another house. 
the the relationships with the first house are not terminated as far as emotional and uh, genetic relationship. They're all, but now they're over in this other house. You have to remember that this gathering was a way in which to create a society, and in that society, a communion of that society, which we call community. That communion is the sharing of bread and the sharing of assistance and the sharing of help, which we call loving one another. So if you think your little home church and all the love that you feel when you gather together is great, wait till you start gathering your home church with 10 other home churches and start practicing that same love that we see Christ practicing, which is the love of service. Of others, this is going to be a constant thing coming up and has been for me is church service is not where you all sit together and sing and talk and and listen to sermons where you all get a good feeling. Church service is when you actually do good. It's actually service. And we're going to see how that translates out into the words that are being stretched because there are several different words here that are translated into household. And they, some of them are completely different words in the Greek. Um, and so if you don't know when they are used, you can be confused about what they're talking about because you think it's the same word because they translated it the same way. But it's two different words. And seeing where that is and reading it in the context of the Bible may awaken in you that which the Holy Spirit is trying to tell you. This is what we hear all the time when we're showing people these things is people said, oh, you know, I wondered about that, they said. <laughs> they wondered about it, but they lack knowledge, information to help them set down the baggage of the institutional church that has misled people and pick up the cross of Christ. You know, the, the duties of Christ. That's what the cross, uh, picking up the cross of Christ, that's what it means. You don't actually go out and, and build a cross and then carry it around. I mean, people do that. Hopefully, it's just symbolic. But picking up the cross of Christ is to pick up what you need to do for others because Christ came to serve. You need to gather together in your home churches to serve. And in that unselfish service, the Holy Spirit will enter into you like it entered into that woman who went and touched the hem of Christ's garment. And was healed. And it will heal you. Which is actually one of those words that they. The word for healing. Is actually translated household. In the Bible. It doesn't mean household. It means healing. But they translate it that way. And it's misled people. But again. We're not supposed to be led by scripture. We check. The leading of the Holy Spirit in us. With scripture. We check it with our fellow Christians who, if they say, well, wait a minute, I don't think it means that, and you talk it out, ultimately you have to go back to your prayer closet and consult the Holy Spirit and say, you know, I think I was wrong about that. Or you might think, I think I was right about that. I think he's wrong about that. I'm going to have to go talk to him. (laughs) And you, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So anyway, so this, this word oikos, and it comes in many different forms. I mean, there are verbs and there's adjectives and there's nouns. And so we're going to look at some of these different ones. But uh it could be your family, but it could also be the family of God, which is why we see a, 
uh, what I just talked about, where it says the house of God. That's not just your family. That's families coming together in free assemblies. That's the house of God. And that would also include those that little flock that Christ called out and appointed. And those people that, that, you know, when Peter says, look out amongst yourselves and pick men you trust, and we will appoint them over this matter. When he appoints them over this matter, they become part of that house of God too, in a different capacity. Everybody who is gathering in a community and a society that is living by faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty and conforming to the ways of Christ and the spirit of Christ is coming into them. That's the house of God. But there are different roles that everybody plays. And those roles may change from year to year. You know, for you might be a minister for 10 years. And then you might go back to just being a congregant. You know, these are your choices. and they're, But hopefully they're made by the leading of the Holy Spirit. But it's they're free assemblies, but everybody has a role, in, and if they're not playing it, you can't do what we see them doing in Acts. When the system of Rome was breaking down and the Roman imperial cult, we have live links on the page that, uh, uh, on Home Church that shows you what that imperial cult of Rome is. When that was all breaking down and degenerating society into these bizarre things we see actually going on in our own society today. The church was doing something completely different. The the community of Christians was doing something completely different, which allowed them to survive and even thrive during that decline and fall of the Roman Empire. So if you think that the nations around you are following in the footsteps of Rome and other fallen civilizations like Babylon, then you might want to start edging towards the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And one of the ways you do that is you sit down in congregations of ten. And then you link those congregations with all the other congregations of ten. And you link them together through charity. Through a system of fervent charity, which is fervent love for one another. Cashing your bread upon the waters. So, anyway, when we we see... uh, so you've got the that your uh, this oikos is could be your family, it could be the family of God, uh, uh, or what we call the Christian Church, or even your descendants of a family. In other words, have a common father. Well, this is why Jesus says, "Call no man on earth father," is because the Roman emperors were all referred to as Patronus, and all the senators were referred to as Patri Father. And that's who you prayed to for your daily bread. But the early church did not pray to them for their daily bread. They prayed to their Father in heaven. And the ones who fed the sheep are the servants of God, which was the called out of Jesus Christ, which you could call the church today, because that's the word we use, is church. But they're actually the called out of God. And they provide a service to the people, but they provide it, like John the Baptist said, like Jesus said, like Paul says, like Peter says, not through covetous practices, but through fervent charity, through charity, through loving one another. And so we see a number of different quotes that that shows up in, but we'll have to address that in uh, the next show, and uh, which will give me time to extend my notes out here farther and farther so that we can really begin to understand what what the household of God is supposed to be doing and what it shouldn't be doing. And how to do it. And so anyway, we'll do that when we return. 
Until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.